Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about always being happy. Watch, wait. Hi, Adam. Thanks for always being happy. What? Gay. Well, or what it means to be gay. Are we getting hot? Yes. You live in Alaska, and the only way in and out of your place is by plane. And uh, you definitely came here for food and supplies and to find a wife. Wow. <laughs> that was right. Got goosebumps all over me. I'm clairvoyant, butthead. Well, why wouldn't you just go to Nome to get supplies and a wife? Isn't that a lot closer? <laughs> yeah, right. That's where you'd go to find girls. Nome. He's gay, by the way. Well, good for you. Well, we try. I suppose I would have to call the film Blast from the Past, directed by Hugh Wilson, a guilty pleasure. I don't do that because I personally feel that there's anything to be guilty over, but I know that it's probably not as uh, critically acclaimed as it could be, is held in what I would consider to be very much an in-the-middle esteem by both critics and audiences alike. But from my perspective, it was a delightful first watch with strong performances by Christopher Walken, uh, Sissy Spacek, and um, Alicia Silverstone and Dave Foley. And what you might expect from Brendan Fraser, I don't criticize uh, Fraser for being consistently in movies like uh, Encino Man or California Man or um, Dudley Do-Right. It seems to be his shtick. I don't believe he deserves any great acting accolades for consistently playing those types of roles. But nowhere does it work better than in Blast from the Past, which is a movie about a family that goes into a fallout shelter in the, right at the onset of the Cuban Missile Crisis and doesn't emerge for 35 years when their son, who was born shortly after they went down under, sees the world for the first time. And everything uh, on rewatching after that initial setup, so after maybe the first 25 minutes of who they are and why they're in the bomb shelter and how was he educated, once you know all that stuff, that he was basically raised by his two parents with their conservative values, uh, seeing only reruns or uh, previously recorded tapes of the honeymooners and stuff like that as his television, and now tries to interact with what is, what is our modern world. There's a lot of comic payoff from that point forward. And even the cliches seem to be done so intentionally. You can't name that particular lead character, Adam, and have him meet a girl that he falls in love with and name her Eve without having um, all, the, all the jokes being pretty much set up in advance. The scene that I played in the very beginning is from near the end of the film when, when Adam uh, thinks he's saying goodbye to everybody forever and on the run from authorities uh, thanks the Troy character, played by Dave Foley, for always being happy. And the clip that I played right after the theme music was the setup for that much earlier in the film, not long after he meets Troy for the first time. In the course of conversation, Eve tells Adam that Troy is gay. And Adam has no concept for that term meaning anything other than uh, happy and lighthearted, uh, the kind of information that he would have received from his parents who would have tried to convey in the early 1960s when raising this child in a complete vacuum 
The uh, positive aspects of what that term had, had historically meant and avoiding any sort of controversial or negative aspect. So when he emerges from underneath the bomb shelter, he knows what a Negro is, and he's delighted to finally see a black person for the first time ever in person. But he has no idea what gay means. So when, when uh, he's informed that Troy is in fact gay, <laughs> Brendan Fraser's character Adam leans in and says, well, good for you. And that's kind of the sort of setup that I'd like to, to bring to the play here, to say, you know what, this is a conversation where I'm going to fumble. And I'm going to fumble for several reasons. First, uh, it can't be done in the time span I'm going to give myself. So for two weeks in a row, I'm talking about something that is controversial and complex to such a degree that this may be little more than laying a foundation for future inappropriate conversations and most likely conversations that will come in the next calendar year. So in that respect, there's no way to do this topic justice. But the other problem that I'm going to have is I don't bring any personal experience to this. If one of the things I think that I'm relatively good at is being a, a personal storyteller, somebody who has a great memory of things that have happened in the past and, and can tell the story again. In this case, I have no memories that apply. This is one of those cases where not being part of what we would call the religious right in America, I, I have to do a little bit of guessing, provide a little bit of supposition for what I think the political viewpoint is over there, but also not being gay, um, being as straight as you can get, I would imagine, would be the way someone would describe me based on the way I've lived my life and my relationship with my wife. I don't have anything to offer there either. I don't have any recollection. I don't have any personal stories. And being a Christian and kind of in the political middle of these two polls, perhaps more than other, any other issue being smack dab in the middle of all this, I, I probably don't have a lot of information that I've been given from people who, when they take a polarized position and say, well, hey, we're part of this, we're part of this movement. We're part of the gay rights movement. Or we're part of the religious right in America. They're not going to give me a lot of inside information because... I am too close to being the enemy to be trusted. And that's true, again, I would say equally on both sides of this, of this particular issue. Not long ago, I, I named a man named Hank Hanegraaff as a different drummer. And I did so acknowledging a couple of things right up front. First off, he and I don't agree necessarily on a lot of political issues. That he, I think, does a fantastic service by standing up to aberrant Christian views. He does reel in Christian extremism on a weekly basis in his talk show, The Bible Answer Man radio broadcast, which I would describe as being nearly nationwide. Having said that, I think that if I were to call him up and say, hey, I'm, I've got questions on this issue. I'm trying to find my way here. Jesus said absolutely nothing about homosexuality in his lifetime. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he was in constant communication with God the Father. I believe that God the Almighty, the, uh, the Father of the, of the Trinity, who had lots of things to say and do related to things that we interpret in our modern age to be a response to homosexuality in the Old Testament, didn't make a point of it with Jesus in the New Testament either. And despite the fact that you see writers like John and Paul quoting Old Testament law, with regard to the issue of homosexuality, it's an interesting gap to me that Jesus had you know, really nothing to say, did not view that as a priority, instead wanted his followers going out into the world and making disciples of Christ by sharing his truth with others as a good news gospel message and following Jesus's example of going into places where the politically correct religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees in particular, said he should not go. So let me kick this thing off with a quick look over to the right and saying, hey, I'm going to offer a controversial idea. It's one that I'm willing to back down from a little bit, but not a lot. In our society today, if Jesus were to return, not 
in a second coming paradigm. But if he were to come as he did the first time, you know, to introduce himself to us as God incarnate and to try to reestablish the right and wrongs that we had become so adrift from 2,000 years ago, where the Pharisees in particular, but also the Sadducees to a degree in Jewish society at the time, had decided that the most important thing was not loving God and following him, but, but loving the law and following it, or fearing the law and following it. And thereby they had set up a hedge around almost all of the rules that were found in the first five books of the Bible, in the Jewish Torah, to try to make sure that nobody accidentally broke any of those laws. And you ended up with, with rules and traditions piled on top of the original laws that in some cases made it almost impossible for people to live their lives. And what did Jesus say about those Old Testament laws? I mentioned last week that he talked about none of the law going away until all had been fulfilled, but then he also fulfilled the law. But what did he say when he spoke directly into any of those issues? Questions about whether to work on the Sabbath, for example, or questions about whether to mingle with others. And Jesus was incredibly consistent. And to my mind, speaking to our world right now, when he said, I did not come to reach the healthy, I came to reach those who are hurting. I came to reach those who are fallen. I came to heal those who are sinners. And he also said, it's perfectly okay to you know, save your son's life by performing a medical procedure on him or performing first aid or taking him to a doctor, even if he, he happens to fall ill on the Sabbath. Those are the kind of things that were going on. So if Jesus were to be here now in that same paradigm, who would be the Pharisees? And I'm going to make a suggestion to you that the Pharisees would be the religious right in America today. They wouldn't be Jewish people because Jewish people of any sort, of any political persuasion, don't represent the ruling majority in the paradigm of the religious in our society right now. The Take Him With You podcast by uh, Rick Moyer talks about the idea of how important it is to be spiritual, but not religious, that it's about relationship. It's not about rules. And it's part of the, th part of the reason I enjoy that podcast so much. Uh, I've heard you know, the Bible Answer Man show, Hank Hanegraaff, talk about how important it is to speak the truth to people, that there are physical dangers in engaging in a homosexual lifestyle, at least a male homosexual lifestyle, and that there are other reasons why it may be uh, good, decent, and kind to speak to people who feel that they are genuinely bisexual or genuinely confused about their sexuality and want to know which course to go on, that it may be very genuinely loving to quote chapter and verse and to suggest that um, there's a, a, a path that might be preferable, at least for my personal life. But on the other hand, a lot of that is quoted as chapter and verse. So I want to specifically call out the, the recent event of a show that the, the Bible Answer Man broadcast did with a guest speaker, um, a man named Joe Dallas, who was engaged in some of the you know, rescue sort of activities, rescue from homosexuality, I suppose would be the way you'd word it. We'll get to that topic here in just a minute. But the first half of the program was all with a lot of rhetoric about gay rights versus religious right, you know, us versus them conversation. And to me, that was wrong. And that's one of the things about that particular different drummer that I have that I have issues with. But I'll tell you why I still feel comfortable with him in the menu of people that I that I listen to, knowing that I can ferret out the good from the bad, know that I can ferret out the scripture from the politics. Later on in the show, when the phone lines opened up and callers who listen to the, to the radio broadcast call in and ask questions, he got this question from somebody which really just riveted me. I, it stopped me in my tracks because it was exactly, despite the fact that it was horrif a horrifying question, I'll share it in just a second. 
it was exactly the right thing for this particular set of, of broadcasters to hear at that moment. Because having gone through, again, 15, 20, 30 minutes of discussing what to do about the problem and, and, and essentially discussing ways to marginalize homosexual influence uh, in society when it comes to decisions about equal opportunity. A caller calls up and says, hey, you know what? I run a small business in Arkansas. I'm not going to imitate the accent. I probably could, but I'm not going to. I, I, I run a small business in Arkansas, and I've got this opening, and I've got an applicant who is perfect for the job. There's just no doubt that this person, this guy can do the job. But he's gay, and I don't think I should hire him. What do you think? I was mortified just at the very Q&A that was going on. The fact that the question would get raised. Because to me, I'm not necessarily going to go so far as describing the question itself as criminal, but there's something seriously wrong with the mindset behind it. And the good news is that the host of the show, the Bible Answer Man himself, gave what I thought was the right answer to a certain degree. He said, hang on a second. You're thinking wrong here. We're supposed to be interacting with people. We're supposed to be shining a light on a hill. We're supposed to be representing Christ to others. And that kind of attitude that says, well, because you have a certain part of your life that I disagree with, you can't be interacting with me is completely wrong. And he spoke fairly eloquently against what he calls the we-they-siege mentality of us versus them. The irony is, of course, that the us versus them was in some ways inspired by the first part of the conversation. And that it's a little bit of a tricky thing to manage a strong political position that says that group is wrong and this group is right. But in my mind, both groups have some issues with the notion that you can then turn around and tell a small businessman that he's being prejudiced against others. If he's being prejudiced against others on the basis of their sexual orientation, and if that is completely inappropriate and not a Christian response to the issue, statements, by the way, that I totally agree with, then you've just agreed with a ton of what the quote-unquote gay rights agenda is all about. So I think this is one of those things where we have two groups that if you, you talk to the moral behind them. If you get to the ethical conversation and you get all the anger out of it, you get all the name calling out of it. And maybe if you did it just sort of as a totally blind test where neither person could see the other or hear the other's voice or get any visual cues from how somebody dresses and just, you know, find a way to completely neutralize everything down to what is it you believe? You probably have two groups here who believe that all men are created equal. You probably have two groups here who believe that no one should be bullied that no one should be discriminated against, that no one should be the victim of any sort of, of anger or hatred or retaliation, that we shouldn't make assumptions about people based on how they dress or how they look, and that a person's private life is their own, that we don't have the right to be inside their bedroom critiquing and second-guessing anything that they may do, whether they're alone or with they're with another person or not, that you might get a lot of agreement there. But the, the agreement completely breaks down when all of the other emotions come into it. And a lot of this stuff is simply a matter of people letting their emotions think for them and not their principles. Because the Bible Answer Man told this caller directly, if this is the right person for the job, you should hire him. Now, he took it a step further and said some things that I think are very dangerous, like, you know, your ability to share your witness is going to be enhanced by this person being in your presence. You know, I don't think that the workplace is an appropriate place for an employer to impose his will upon his employees. It doesn't mean that you have to hide the fact that you're a Christian. It doesn't mean that you have to hide your convictions. That is one thing to show who you are. It is quite another thing to preach to people who have a you know, relationship with you that gives them no choice but to listen. And I think that was a very fine line that didn't get walked all that well. But I did think that 
it was an interesting dichotomy to me that the host of this show, who typically does pretty good work, especially when it comes to biblical interpretation, understood how wrong it was for us to have a uh, prejudicial attitude toward people that would separate them based on you know what what they do or who they are, and yet at the same time might end up being the kind of person who would have supported some of the laws that have been so controversial in recent years, including the one, I think it was Proposition 2 was the name of it, in Colorado a while back, which would have specifically put into that state's law the absolute right for somebody to refuse to hire somebody based on their supposition of what their sexual practices might be, or to to uh, to put into law a very clear statement that hotels didn't have to check rooms to people, gas stations didn't have to sell gas to people, so forth and so on, that based on what you might do in the privacy of your own home, based on what, we, based on what people might guess you would do in the privacy of your own home, you don't even have to be right about your suppositions to exert that kind of prejudice. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, sitting here in the middle, that I really am not comfortable with what it means for us to be making all of these decisions based on things that we're assuming about people that frankly ought to be private to begin with. And when you take a look at what it means to take some of these things to their logical extreme, I get very uncomfortable with the idea that anything humans can do can make somebody who is gay not gay. Hey, this is Harrison Ford. When I'm not on a canal boat in the UK with my sexy other half, Ali McBeal, I'm listening to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Sin... Shit, where'd she go? Oh, it's okay. She just turned sideways. <laughs> I thought you'd fallen through a crack in the deck. Again. There are a couple of factors that I think we should look at here when it comes to the way Christians perceive homosexuals, um, especially the religious right. When you've got this idea that you have some people who think that, well, it's just behavior, that there is no such thing as homosexual. That, by the way, was not the tone of the other podcast that I referred to earlier in the show. They definitely went through their entire conversation as, as which there is such a thing as homosexual, there is such a thing as heterosexual, and they didn't even say that homosexuality was wrong per se, but that the behavior was wrong. So the one guy who was the guest on the show seems to have a ministry built around the idea of taking people who are gay and simply stopping them from behaving that way. Seemed to be the notion. And this is where I get a little bit uncomfortable because I do not want to use terms like brainwashing. But I don't know what other term to use for some of that besides maybe the concept of retraining. Even that makes me extremely uncomfortable because it calls to mind things like the Khmer Rouge. If essentially what we're saying is that this is an individual who in his or her heart of hearts would engage in with homosexual activities if there wasn't something stopping them. If there wasn't a law, if there wasn't extreme societal disapproval with an almost big brother-like awareness of what happens in your private time, if there was nothing stopping the individual, including you know a, a, a religious-based fear, then that individual would engage in homosexual activities. And if you say, well, okay, homosexual activity is inherently wrong, I, I used if there, we'll get We'll get to that topic on another day. We're not going to get to it today. But if you start with the assumption that homosexual behavior is inherently wrong, and all you've done is curtail the behavior, once again, we have a Christian misunderstanding of what Jesus had to teach. Because essentially, Jesus wants the hearts of people. Jesus wants the hearts of people, not necessarily the correct set of behaviors. If somebody is doing the correct set of behaviors, born out of nothing more than fear and not a genuine love of God, you haven't changed anything. You haven't saved anybody's soul. You haven't corrected anybody's behavior. You've accomplished absolutely nothing. 
But you know what? Perhaps when I look over to the religious right and I try to assess my biggest issues with them on this question of homosexuality, that's my biggest problem is that it's not necessarily a political approach born of the idea that there is no such thing as homosexuality. You hear that talk. You hear that talk all the time. And I've spoken my mind on this. If you go to the website at http colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com and click on the category for articles, there's an article that I put out there on April 18th of 2010 that kind of puts my perspective on the question of whether or not this is choice based behavior or not. That in my mind, to be homosexual is something. And if we simplify this to make it easier to speak to, let's just simplify the topic and let's remove notions of bisexuality out of the mix. Let's remove notions of voluntary religious celibacy out of the mix. So I'm not talking about the Catholic priesthood. I'm not talking about bisexuality. Let's, let's make it very simple that there's something we're calling straight and there's something we're calling gay. And in my mind, two things are true. First, the something we're calling gay is not a choice. And second, the moral distinction that you might make if you were a politically active Christian is not genuinely the behavior. Let me make that statement again because I think we miss it sometimes. I don't think that your average Christian is any more comfortable with somebody who believes they are gay but has voluntarily decided not to have any sex with anybody ever. They're not any more comfortable with that person than they would be with somebody who's leading a gay lifestyle in the privacy of their home. And that's something that as Christians I think we have to answer for. That we can talk about this thing just being a behavior, but I don't think we're being honest with ourselves. That caller from Arkansas who asked the Bible answer man a question, he was going to be just as uncomfortable if this person was still a gay man, identifying himself as a gay man, but leading a voluntarily celibate lifestyle. He still would have had the same question about whether it was okay to hire him. And again, to be fair to Hank Hanegraaff, Hank Hanegraaff said it is perfectly okay to hire him and you shouldn't be prejudiced against people. But is the prejudice that this man was speaking based solely on what this person he doesn't know really may or may not do in the privacy of his home? Or was it based on who this person thinks he is? And then you start getting into the question of, well, maybe there's no such thing as homosexuality and this person isn't who he thinks he is. He's just really, really confused. And I don't buy that. In the um, Boiling Point episode early on, the one where I named John Stewart as a different drummer, I talk a little bit about this and I won't repeat myself here. But if you're a Christian who believes that this is all just a choice, that there isn't anything inherently inside a person that dictates kind of where their sexual attraction is. And I'm not even talking genetics. I'm just talking subconscious, either superego or the collective unconscious. There's not, if you think there's nothing there and that it's all 100% choice, great. Tell me about the time that you chose voluntarily to resist the real and powerful temptation to engage in a homosexual sexual relationship with somebody. Because it can't be a choice if you've never been tempted by it. All of us, from a Ten Commandments perspective, everyone, if only in the deepest, darkest corners of their dreams, have been tempted to steal, have been tempted to kill, have been tempted to lie, have been tempted to lust after other people's possessions, and all of us have had the other kind of lust in our lives, all I'm saying is that as far as I can tell, in my life, in my walk, that lust has genuinely been 100% heterosexual, unless I've repressed some things more deeply than you'd think I would based on how openly I share. But if you think the other is true, that lust is lust is lust, and this could go either way, and all of us are tempted equally by heterosexual choices and homosexual choices, then I want to hear your witness. And I'm, I'm saying this sincerely. I'm saying, you know, with Jesus as my Savior and God as my witness, I need to hear your testimony. 
I need to understand why I'm a creature from another planet and I'm different and I don't fit in here because it's, it's, it's going to hamper my witness for me not to know these things. Unless what you're saying is that for lots of other people, both of the choices are equally tempting and that, you know, on a bad day, they could, they could find themselves in a, in a, in a lustful heterosexual sexual tryst, but on another bad day, they could find themselves in a lustful homosexual sexual tryst. And there's nothing inside who they are as a person that drives any of that. But you're different. You're weird like me. Well, let me say this. There, there's just two of us in the entire planet who are weird like you and me. And everyone else has a choice. And that you and I think together, like, hey, you know, it's hard for me to speak on the issue. And maybe you speak more freely than I do, but it's hard for me to speak on the issue because I don't feel like I've got a lot of choice in the matter. I feel like I was kind of made the way I am. Uh, and I think I was kind of made by God the way I am, as a matter of fact. And therefore, I'm on the course that I was inevitably meant to be on. Might not be married to the woman that I'm married to now. There's certainly got to be possible worlds out there where that would have played out differently. But I'm very happy I'm in the possible world that I'm in. The actual world fulfills a lot of the things that I, that I would have ever wanted from it because I think I am being who I truly am. And say you're the same way. But everyone else on the planet has this choice to make that we don't genuinely have to face. Is it therefore acceptable for us to be prejudiced or discriminating? Let's not use the term prejudice. And let's not even use the term discrimination. Let's, let's talk about it as being discriminating, making judgments, making careful choices. And maybe these careful choices and judgments that we're making aren't necessarily ugly and vile. But our discriminating choices that some people have decided to do things kind of the way we have no choice about, and therefore they're good folks. And some people have made the different decision. They've fallen into the temptation that they could have resisted and that we don't even really have to resist. But they, they had a choice to make and they made the bad choice. So they're, they're on the bad side of things. They're not the good people. Once you've done this, the entire question about gay versus straight disappears. And the entire notion about whether there's a choice in it or not completely disappears. Because what you've done, what I've just done, is I've divided the world into two kinds of people. Those who have to face a choice and those who don't. And guess what? Once I've established that there are two kinds of people here and that there's something inherently true about it, that people like me don't face a choice and people like those other people do face a choice, it is suddenly wrong to discriminate against those people whether you like their choice or not. Let me say this again. For the exact same reason that a lot of people on the liberal side of the political spectrum think that it is absolutely wrong to have a prejudice or make a discriminating decision about somebody because they are gay, because they're made that way, and you can't discriminate against people based on things that they don't really have any control or choice over. And the religious right crops up and says, that's crazy. They do have a choice. It's all choice. But just simmer down for a second there because we have another problem to deal with. If the problem isn't that you know everyone in the world is able to make a choice and some people make good choices and some people make bad choices and therefore discrimination is okay, what if the problem is that there's two kinds of people in the world, some who don't have to make a choice at all and some who do? And once you go there, I think that it becomes an incredibly wrong thing. Every bit as wrong as discriminating against somebody based on the, the color of their hair, the color of their skin what their religious beliefs are, it becomes equally wrong because all of those things boil down to the same kind of problem. You don't have an issue in your life that you have to control. Somebody else does. And that, that problem, if you want to call it that for them, is inherent enough that it's wrong to discriminate based on it. Let's mull that over for a few months and come back to it later because it's out there as a concept. And this is essentially where I'm at. 
I've asked the question before of, hey, can you share your witness with me if you've been tempted to engage in a homosexual relationship as someone who feels like you're heterosexual or somebody who feels like you could be that you're not bisexual, but you could be either because this is all based on choice. And I've I've gotten a couple of answers before. But the interesting thing about those couple of answers is the vulnerability of the person making the decision relative to the situation that person was in. I have never gotten an answer from somebody who said, yes, as a fully functioning, mentally healthy, completely strong adult in a situation where I had the power and control over what I was doing and I faced a choice that was incredibly tempting and I decided to do either the quote unquote right thing or the quote unquote wrong thing. I was completely within my power. I've yet to find a single adult, Christian, heterosexual, politically active conservative who is willing to tell me that as an adult Christian, completely in control of their faculties, they were genuinely tempted to engage in, in homosexual relationships, and they were able to resist it for this, that, or the other reason. Now, part of the reason that's never happened is that there's a lot of prejudice there. I mean, most people know where I'm heading with this. I'm going to kind of come along here in a second and say that even if you're a homosexual who has been persuaded through some sort of retraining to never engage in any sexual activity whatsoever, I'm st I still have a problem with that. In my mind, you're still a homosexual person. You're just a homosexual person who's had some kind of psychological violence performed against you, perhaps. And I don't think that these hypothetical conservative Christian heterosexuals who are very tempted to live a gay lifestyle – want to be considered to be latent homosexual that for me to call them latent homosexuals who are living a Christian heterosexual life would probably offend them for some reason. And they don't want to be part of that club, you know? So there's one, but the other thing is that the two people I can cite who have sort of shared their story with me, were all in a situation where they either were being bullied as kids. Uh, so they're in a junior high, high school environment where they're the, the focus of some very intense psychological violence, if not physical violence, and the people who sheltered them from that violence happened to be people who were friends with each other because they had the common quality of being gay. And so now you're, you're being tempted to join in a gay group, not being a gay person, at an age when your hormones are running wild and you're, being, you're trying to find a way to shelter yourself from the storm of some intense violence. I don't think that's the kind of example that we would want to use as a laboratory for whether we can make decisions about what really does and doesn't happen out there. The other one was very similar, except it was an individual who was extremely lonely and extremely um, depressed and had graduated from high school and was in that college era. Either way, you're dealing with somebody where those other factors can account for the confusion. And if you eliminate those two testimonials as examples of confusion, everyone else you deal with who can have the story to tell is either somebody who is either bisexual, which we're leaving out of the question for now, or somebody who is homosexual and is only pretending to be straight. I guess what I'm saying is this, that even if you do not believe that there is a genetic difference between gay and straight, there is a fundamental difference between gay and straight. And that fundamental difference does not give you any moral room to be prejudiced against somebody for being different than you. I had a conversation last year about this particular topic. It was either in a Sunday school class or in a prayer and share class. Uh, I'm the kind of person who brings these things up when it makes sense in a conversation. And I, I've laid out some of the things that I've talked about in this particular inappropriate conversation. And one of the things that I heard back from was that it, it isn't necessarily fair to view it as an, as an act of brainwashing for somebody who has been engaging in a homosexual lifestyle to decide to stop, become straight, whatever that, that may mean, and have a wife and kids and, and move on from there. 
and I granted that, you know, I think that there's a lot of gray area in my head in terms of where this line is, because I have the disadvantage of being pretty far over on, on the straight side of that spectrum, if there is such a thing as a spectrum. But that I thought that I was a little bit uncomfortable with his characterization of that friend of his, because one of two things is true. Either the friend of his was actually not gay and was engaging in that sort of lifestyle for some other reason, uh, perhaps the same kind of things that my other two friends described in terms of uh, there's a point in time in your life where you need shelter from the storm. And maybe perhaps they felt that they had to pay the dues to be part of the to be a member in the club, whatever that might mean. But the other possibility is that this person was um, genuinely homosexual and was now engaging in a, in a heterosexual lifestyle for reasons that didn't really have anything to do with his wife. I shared with him that I'd heard an interview with somebody once who had referred to this exact kind of thing, you know, leaving a gay lifestyle, getting married, living a heterosexual lifestyle. And the question that came up, uh, the interviewer asked was, what about sex with his wife? You know, what was the regularity of that? You know, was, did he feel that he was heterosexual or did he feel that he was homosexual and just doing what, you know, what he needed to do to live the lifestyle that he wanted to live as a Christian of a particular political persuasion? And the answer that the person gave back was that he had sex with his wife pretty regularly, as often as he felt he could, and that it wasn't necessarily what he felt he was drawn to do sexually. But here's the quote. He said, sometimes you just have to take one for God's team. I shared this with my friend who has some daughters. So we have that in common, and then we have a daughter in our life. And I said to him, would you want your daughter marrying somebody? who was only marrying her out of this sort of lifestyle change and perhaps even this sort of religious fear? Would you want someone whose sexual relationship with your daughter was only a matter of taking one for God's team, holding his nose and doing something he didn't really want to do and feeling like he had no choice and that your daughter was a willing partner in that sort of compromise? And he looked at me like I shouldn't be asking him that kind of question. And hey, maybe he was right. But you know what? He gave me the right answer. No. As fathers, that's not what we wish for our daughters. As brothers, we shouldn't be wishing that sort of thing for our sisters. And in my case, as friends, I would never wish anything like that for any of my female friends. You know, I'm not going to boil it down to a simple point here and say that, that all sexuality is either an act of lust or, on the other end, some sort of a dutiful sort of procreative maneuver. I don't buy that. I think that's way too simple. But I would say this. A lot of sexual encounters, perhaps most sexual encounters, do need to be right up there on the edge of actually being an, an idolatrous behavior where what you're doing is devoted entirely to your desire, lust if you want to call it that, for the other individual. And when you have somebody who's engaging in sexual relationships with somebody for whom they feel no lust, that's nothing to be proud of. That is, especially if it's an act of deception, that's an act of violence. So if you've got people out there who are engaging in homosexual activities, who aren't gay, that is wrong. And the Bible has plenty to say about it, if only because I think it's an act of deception, it's an act of violence, it's a heartbreaking thing to do, you shouldn't be manipulating people. But likewise, if you've got somebody who is gay, who in his heart of hearts thinks he's gay, who all of his lustful thoughts are devoted in a, a male-on-male direction, and he's still pretending to be straight and somehow coming up with some kind of psychological construct that enables for him to perform sexually with his wife, if, especially if she's not in on it. If this is a deception to her, that is also an act of extreme violence. 
It may be a silent violence. It may be nothing more than, in the minds of some, nothing more than a little white lie. I think it's a very big lie. It's not a little lie. And it's an act of violence. And to be honest with you, if she's a willing partner in that kind of a construct, I think that she's actually doing some things which deny the glory of God just as much as the homosexual behavior in the minds of the religious right might be too. Because we're taking something that is given to us to mean one thing, and we're perverting it into a political statement or a political message. Taking one for God's team? What if God doesn't want you taking it that way? The topic of latent homosexuality gives me an entree to talk about our different drummer this week. And I feel a little bit bad about bringing up the different drummers, plural, Joel and Ethan Cohen. In the context of just the question of latent homosexuality, it seems dismissive. I'd originally thought that I might talk about these guys when I was dealing with some of those time-based questions. Um, anything related to possible world theory or uh, the, an overview of the decades, because these directors have done a marvelous job of taking us into times and places which most filmmakers over the course of history don't really view as all that enticing. When you, talk, when you think about the films that these men have made... They're not going back into the, you know, the heyday of the Civil War or the uh, formation of America or necessarily the, the triumphant return from World War II. They are still nevertheless making period pictures that go back to a point in time, capture the essence of that moment, and use the uh, opportunities presented by the limitations and, and the things that are different then to really drive their storytelling. For me, one of my favorites is No Country for Old Men. If you set the film No Country for Old Men anywhere near the present day, it's an incredibly short film. Hunter, out on the prairie, shoots an animal, doesn't kill it, tracks it down, finds a drug deal, pulls out his cell phone, dials 911, roll credits. It, it needs to be in 1979 to 1982. It needs to be in that time frame to be at a point in time where the temptation that this particular character faced was genuine. It needed to be a real, genuine temptation. And today, it's too easy for us to skirt past that and say, well, I would have walked away from the money. You know, you might walk away from the money if you've called the authorities and sort of shut the door on the choice. But if you're still going to be out on the range trying to track a wounded animal, the, the choice is still out there. So I think No Country for Old Men, in many ways, is a brilliant film. It's decried by some as being incredibly violent and pointlessly violent. And it's decried by others for having an ending that doesn't pay off with the big violent conclusion. But you know what? I think that as Christians, I, I take a lot of comfort in from time to time seeing a film that puts evil on the screen the way evil needs to be shown. That evil is a temptation. That it makes a heads I win, tails you lose bargain with us. That the temptations are real and the consequences are just as real. So I really enjoy that. And I think that there's nothing wrong with violence being shown on the screen if violence drives home this notion that there's good and evil out there. I also really enjoyed the ending because the ending of the film reminded me of Ingmar Bergman's Faith Trilogy. The, to me, the connection between Through a Glass Darkly, the early 60s Bergman film, and No Country for Old Men is blazingly clear. Uh, I wouldn't argue with somebody who didn't see the connection and didn't find it to be as clear to them, but for me, it's right there in front of me, and it really resonates because the conclusion of Through a Glass Darkly is probably my favorite five minutes in all of Bergman's work. And uh, to the degree that No Country for Old Men might have disappointed and that we didn't get a shootout with all the Mexicans and all the, all the sheriff's officers and everyone else involved in the same time and whatever people might have dreamed a movie like that could end like, I really thought the ending was personal and, in my mind, completely religious. 
this is not to say that I'm citing the Coen brothers as directors because their films are religious. I don't think that that's a claim that I would be willing to make. What I'm going to credit them for is that their films are incredibly varied, and they've gone from genre to genre, maintaining a consistently high level of quality throughout. Here's just a quick walkthrough. The history of the Coen brothers as directors. Blood Simple started in 1984, followed by Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. When you get to Barton Fink, you get the first time that we've seen back-to-back films from them in short succession. They tend to spend some time with their movies. The first two or three they did, having you know a couple, three years between them. After Barton Fink, in fact, after Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink back-to-back, I'm sure people were expecting more of the same from the Coen brothers, but they come up with the Hudsucker Proxy, which as a comedy I prefer to Raising Arizona. So you've got this mix of dramatic and violent and crime stories with the surrealist story of Barton Fink, now back to comedy. And Fargo, where the comedy and the drama, in my mind, mix together quite a bit, followed by The Big Lebowski. Most people I know who are really, really fans of the Coen brothers really love Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'm not one of them. I'm fine with the movie. I don't think that it rings the bell. Of all the different retellings of of, uh, the Odyssey that I've seen, this one doesn't rate up there as the best. But, you know, it's a seminal film for them, followed by The Man Who Wasn't There. I'm going to spend the balance of this show, I believe, talking about The Man Who Wasn't There. So if you can think of any reason why, I'd want to cite the Coen brothers on this particular Always Being Happy show, and then go to The Man Who Wasn't There to discuss it. You might be able to get ahead of me, and you might find that the conversation is rewarding. The Man Who Wasn't There, by the way, is a fantastic film. Perhaps my second or third favorite of all the Coen brothers' work, and to me criminally underrated. It's worth seeing if you haven't seen it. That was followed by Intolerable Cruelty, which will be the next Coen brothers movie I've seen. I haven't seen it yet, but I've got a copy, and it's ready to watch. The Lady Killers, I also haven't seen. I've yet to meet anybody who suggests that I should be in a hurry to do so. They contributed to an anthology film and also a documentary, but in and around there, the most recent work they've done is No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, and the uh, upcoming release, True Grit. So that is the Coen Brothers' legacy in film. A couple of things that I like about it, there's no clear genre here. If at some point they do a true science fiction film, not just the the hints at callback 50s sci-fi that you see in The Man Who Wasn't There, it'll be perhaps their first genuine venture into that genre. But if you consider broadly films like uh, Miller's Crossing, Blood Simple, and The Man Who Wasn't There to be film noir, those are balanced out by screwball comedies like The Hudsucker Proxy and Intolerable Cruelty with uh, remakes of classic films like The Lady Killers and True Grit. Moral and religious storytelling, which is what I consider No Country for Old Men and definitely A Serious Man, which many have described as being uh, the Book of Job told again, in a 1960s suburban America sort of a setting. And, of course, their reinterpretation of classics like The Odyssey in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This is a wide and varied palette. So, oddly enough, if you go to a Coen Brothers movie, you kind of know what you're going to get when it comes to the quality of filmmaking and the stylistic decisions made by filmmakers, but you absolutely have no clue what you might get from a genre. Uh, Evidence there is that the next one, if they make it the way I think they're going to, going to be a genuine Western. So the Coen brothers have done a lot to make me think about questions of sexual ethics and no better than the one that's presented to us in the man who wasn't there. When I was uh, done watching the movie for the very first time, which is only very recently, I skipped it when it originally came out. I pity the artists, both filmmakers, musicians and playwrights who produced works right in the aftermath 
or right before uh, 9-11-2001. There are things in that 2001 period of time that I know I missed because my attention was completely distracted away from from things like movies at that time. So I only recently saw The Man Who Wasn't There. But my first move was to say this is this is an interesting enough film, not even particularly as film noir, but interesting enough for some of the characterizations that I saw that I wanted to see what other critics had to say about it. And so I went to uh, the World Wide Web and I typed in um, The Man Who Wasn't There, Cohen, Laden Homosexual, and looked for movie reviews. Looked for people who were going to be discussing the issues that I had just seen on screen. And I had a devil of a time finding anyone who had anything to say about the issue. So let's talk a little bit about the film. And The Man Who Wasn't There, uh, Billy Bob Thornton plays the man, Ed Crane, who is married to a woman that uh, is perhaps the more vibrant and dominant of the two in their relationship. She works as an accountant uh, or bookkeeper in the local department store that is owned by a man who married into that department store. So his entire livelihood comes from being the husband of the woman who's wealthy. And uh, Ed Crane's wife is cheating on him. She's sleeping with the boss at work. And uh, Ed Crane describes himself as being indifferent to that. He's neither here nor there. Doesn't necessarily like it, but what's he going to do? Right? That's kind of the attitude. Not a lot of jealousy and certainly not a lot of sexual jealousy coming out of Ed Crane as a character. However, when the opportunity rises to make some quick cash and, and kind of join in a business venture with a man from out of town, Ed Crane decides one of the ways he can raise the money is to blackmail the man his wife is cheating on him with. And from there, the plot takes off and things get out of control. The one scene, though, that really turned the film for me and made me look at the character as somebody other than just sort of a kind of a totally timid and withdrawn person. There's a moment in The Man Who Wasn't There when John Polito, who plays the salesman who entices um, Ed Crane to get involved in a dry cleaning business but needs $10,000 quickly to raise the capital to make it happen. They're having a conversation in, uh, in the man's hotel room. And why wouldn't you? He's a salesman. He's from out of town. He's going to be in a hotel. Ed Crane doesn't want to have this kind of conversation in his barber shop where he works or at his home. He needs this to be quiet. He wants to do this on the side because his uh, revenge, I suppose, against his wife for cheating on him sexually on the side is to come up with a business on the side which will provide him security no matter what happens in her situation. There's a moment when the two men agree that they are going to do the deal together and that within the next few days, Ed Crane will produce the $10,000, money that he's going to get via blackmail, of course. Then when uh, John Polito, the actor makes a gesture that meant absolutely nothing to me. He leans back on the bed a little bit where he was sitting the whole time and undoes the button or loosens up his tie or something. And the Ed Crane character, sitting across the room in the hotel room in a chair, says, is that a pass? Because, mister, you're way out of line. I look to my wife, and we're like, was that a pass? I had no idea, though. It didn't look like a pass to me. It didn't even occur to me that the salesman in this particular situation was homosexual. Some of that may be my cluelessness about anything related to gay culture and lifestyle, but it seemed very, very subtle to me. Subtle enough that there was something really odd about the character of Ed Crane picking up on it. Ed Crane is a character in film history, perhaps not even being aware of homosexuality or his homosexuality, has the best gaydar in film history. He's picking up on stuff that I don't think you'd expect the average person to pick up on. And I began to look at the rest of the film from the perspective of this Ed Crane character is a gay man living in a heterosexual marriage, and he is so deeply in the closet, he doesn't even have a clue. He just thinks he's the kind of guy who just isn't all that randy. And something about that makes the entire rest of the film work. But shockingly, 
when I went looking at reviews, because people dissect Coen Brothers films two, three, and four times. A Coen Brothers movie hits the cinema, and it looks worse than a frog in a freshman biology class when it's done. People rip the thing apart and look at it from every conceivable angle. And the only place I could find what I consider to be right-on-target analysis of this aspect of the film, The Man Who Wasn't There, was in an online publication called Jump Cut, a review of contemporary media. I was not previously familiar with Jump Cut as a, as a publication. It wasn't something that I'd seen before, but it's something that I'm going to seek out from time to time now, because it commits what I consider to be the at-length analysis. Let's be willing to go on for 10, 15, 20 pages about something that your average media critic is just going to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to. So let me wrap up the different drummer segment today and talk a little bit more about the man who wasn't there in particular, because I want to talk about the man who wasn't there in the context of homosexuality and how society views homosexuality. But before I do there, I've not done justice to the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers probably could be 45, 50 minutes of just them alone. There is no other directors working in America today who, when I see there's a film coming out with their name on it, I immediately watch. There are other directors that I enjoy, but I've missed a couple Terry Gilliam films along the way. There are you know, directors who are considered the, you know, the classics of the foreign film industry who get a lot of acclaim nationwide, and I probably should react to their films more quickly. But I don't react to anybody in the director's medium as quickly as I do the Coen brothers. And even when you find their, their storytelling or the way they end their films or the off-kilter approach that they use, especially in their comedies, off-putting, it is definitely worth your time. Maybe people were just indifferent to the film, The Man Who Wasn't There. Coming on the heels of movies like uh, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, perhaps it just didn't resonate with people in the same way. I don't know. Or maybe I'm seeing something in the film that only a couple of other critics in the world are seeing. I'm going to present the case, though. The article that I'm going to refer to, written by Vincent Brooke and Alan Campbell, is called Pansies Don't Float, Gay Representability, Film Noir, and The Man Who Wasn't There. And in this particular um, article, written in, I believe, 2003, or published around then, they say this. Why would such an epiphany be so rare among all the individuals consulted in the 150-odd reviews scanned for this essay? Gay and straight, professional and lay, none but the nation's, Stuart Clowens, has arrived without prompting at a similar conclusion. What is the conclusion that they credit Clowens with? Well, the same conclusion that I'm drawing, that Ed Crane is presented as an deeply closeted, latent homosexual. And the fact that the original running title of The Man Who Wasn't There was called Pansies Don't Float might give you an indication that the Cohen brothers you know, were not completely unaware of this aspect themselves. Here's just a few examples that they list in a, in a detailed analysis. The magazine which Ed Crane has written for his account of his tragic events, the uh, storytelling that frames it, is described as a men's magazine. And a copy of this magazine is shown briefly near the end. It's called Muscle Power. Crane's boss and brother-in-law, Frank, shouts three times in court, What kind of man are you? It is the same question that uh, the victim of the blackmail scheme, Big Dave, asks uh, Crane. What kind of man are you? Crane refuses sex from a precocious teenager that he's platonically connected with and, and helping try to advance her career as a pianist. This is especially noteworthy because the precocious teenager is played by a then-teenage Scarlett Johansson. Crane late in the film admits to not having performed the sex acts with his uh, voluptuous wife Doris for, for several years 
but he earlier seems curiously unaffected by his own celibacy and by Doris's affair. You know, I wasn't going to prance about it, Crane tells us. It's a free country about his own wife sleeping with her boss. The murder weapon that creeps into the film is a stiletto-like letter opener, which at one point a lawyer refers to as a dame's weapon. This is a weapon wielded by Ed Crane, kind of in self-defense. Crane tells us a couple weeks after they met on a blind date that it was Doris who proposed to him. You get the impression that almost all sexual intimacy between the two was led and driven by Doris, his wife, not by Ed. One of Crane's in-laws asked Doris at a wedding reception, how come you guys got no kids? Somebody who mistakes Ed for an employee or a customer of the store and doesn't connect him with being Doris's husband walks up to him at the party and says, hey, haven't I seen you up in ladies' wear? Instead of getting a more traditional tough guy film noir revenge on the man sleeping with his wife, he just, you know, engages in this blackmail scheme as well. And in fact, if he could have blackmailed the man and gotten the 10000 without ruining the man's life, I'm sure he would have. But uh, Big Dave doesn't see it that way. He said, I understand if you'd come in here and sock me in the nose. It's part of the discussion that Big Dave has with Ed where he says, what kind of man are you, anyway? When the salesman, Creighton Tolliver, subtly tries to seduce him, Crane not only discerns this pass instantly, but turns it down with a surprising nonchalance, especially for a small-town, quote-unquote, straight male in the United States of the late 1940s, post-World War II. Moreover, he does proceed to consummate their business deal rather than reject the pansy, as Big Dave calls him, just out of hand. Certainly, Ed would have had reason to say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're not my kind of person. But he doesn't. Ed Crane visits Tolliver in that cheap hotel because even during the scene where he's shaving his naked wife's legs in the tub, he's a barber after all, he can't stop thinking about dry cleaning. His dry cleaning is the business that Tolliver was proposing they go into together. There are other instances. There's probably a handful of other instances here of things that would call to mind the idea that perhaps Ed Crane is a closeted homosexual and perhaps completely indifferent or unaware of his homosexuality and that some of that indifference is a driving force behind his relationship with his wife, his relationship with the other men in the, in the storyline, both or his wife's brother with whom he works and his wife's boss whom he blackmails. It's in the course of this particular line of storytelling that the thing that jumps out at me, and the reason it connects to our topic today, the topic of whether being gay is being happy all the time or not, or what it is to be gay, or more specifically, what the religious right has a problem with. And I think it comes down to this. No one who looks intelligently and analytically at the issue of of gay rights in America is going to come to the conclusion that being gay is a new thing. It's funny that you hear this kind of talk every now and then, that until 1960-something, this was all better than it is now, or this wasn't an issue back then. And yet the same people who say that go all the way back to the book of Genesis as the first citation of homosexual behavior. How can homosexuality have existed at the very dawn of man in their minds when there was only a few thousand people on the planet, and yet it'd be brand new in 1963? How can that possibly be true? So people who think clearly about the issue know that homosexuality has always been with us, and that homosexuality has been with us since such an early point in time that it only makes sense when the world's population balloons and explodes the way it has in the past few centuries, that you're going to have a lot more people on the planet, and therefore you're going to have a lot more gay people on the planet. It really isn't a question of the existence of homosexuality or not. It really isn't the question that we kind of batted around earlier about whether it's a behavior thing or a choice thing or not. The real question comes down to this. The religious right doesn't want a world where there are no gays. 
they know that that's probably an unreasonable request. I'm not even sure the religious right is even all that focused on a world where there's no homosexual behavior at all. Certainly, they would have to be incredibly naive to think that we're going to have a world one day where no one thinks homosexual thoughts. No. What the religious right wants instead is very simple. They want homosexuality to be declared wrong, publicly vilified, and forced into the closet, violently if necessary. There's another kind of violence out there. A violence that says you are not who you think you are. A violence that says you do not have the right to be who you think you are. And that is the kind of violence that we're talking about. You know, another person from Arkansas, not this color to the Bible Answer Man show, but somebody who at the time was on a school board in a small Arkansas school district, basically said that he not only was refusing to participate in any sort of anti-bullying movement, he wasn't going to wear a purple shirt on that day last month where people were wearing purple to speak out against the kind of bullying that has led to suicides. And in some cases, if you go back far enough in history, the kind of bullying that has also led to murder. If you think about it, you know, a man who would sacrifice himself for a cause surely would sacrifice others. Bullying doesn't always lead to the victim of the bullying finding himself in a, in a, in a life-and-death situation. Sometimes the bully ends up in a life-or-death situation. But there was a guy in Arkansas who refused to stand up and oppose this kind of bullying because in his mind, um, he was going to be happy when all the gays are dead. You can't tell me as a Christian that you believe that the religious right is being characterized unfairly. When people are calling, call-in shows to talk to hosts of radio programs to say, please tell me it's okay not to hire this guy because he's gay. Or when people who sit on the school board of small Arkansas school districts are saying that they look forward to the day when all the homosexuals are dead. There's a problem in our Christianity when we no longer understand the difference between reaching out to others in ministry and telling other people what to do and why they're wrong. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. A lot of this comes down to the false notion, the non-biblical notion, and I'm beginning to think maybe an anti-biblical notion, that as Christians we are called to love the sinner but hate the sin. You're not going to find that instruction in the Bible. You're not even going to find that example explicitly in the, in, in the way Christ lived his life. The actual quote, which has become such a commonplace thing in our society, is from Mahatma Gandhi. I'm not even sure he was speaking on behalf of Hinduism, but that's a quote that is typically ascribed to him. We are called to love people as they are, to reach out to people genuinely, to share who we are genuinely. And you can't do that if you aren't engaging in open conversation and dialogue that is not intimidating and not violent and genuinely loving with people who may or may not be homosexual. But if you do know they're homosexual, that doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're somehow ruled out of interacting with them. It doesn't give you permission not to hire them or permission not to speak with them or permission not to give them a, a hotel room in your hotel or to serve them a meal or to pump gas if you're in Colorado or any other state in the country. Now, I think it's a good thing that that Colorado law was struck down, but it was still there that it's not hard to find 50% or more of the people in certain parts of our country who are willing to betray everything Christ told us he wanted us to do because the prejudice is more important than their ministry. How sad. I have a closing thought on this that I won't take any time to explain. 
because I think that this is the right point. We're talking about the love the sinner and hate the sin situation. A few years ago, July of 2005, uh, I got an online blog from somebody named Richard Chappell, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. So could be Chappell, could be Chappelle, writing um, in a website called philosophyetc.net and speaking as an atheist. He was talking about the difference between the way Christians react, particularly to homosexuality, where we have this notion that we can be genuinely open to you and deny who it is you think you are at the same time. But he raises kind of self-introspectively as an atheist philosopher that maybe the same thing happens toward Christians or some religious types as well. So I'm going to let him have the last word today. This is Richard Chappelle. It's interesting to note the formal parallel with the Christian favorite, love the sinner, hate the sin. For us militant atheists, speaking as Richard Chappelle, it becomes something more like love the religious, hate the religion. This parallel raises some interesting challenges for both sides. Firstly, it makes one wonder why Christians are so prone to the conflation. If the sinner-sin distinction is so important and familiar to them, why do they have so much trouble recognizing it when they're on the receiving end? Very puzzling. Of course, speaking as Greg, I would say the reason they don't recognize it is that it's a false distinction all along, and that the Holy Spirit isn't speaking to that question of sinner-sin distinction. Back to Richard Chappelle. As for atheists, well, it really should give us pause. We can't stand that love the sinner nonsense. We typically think that it's an insincere excuse from homophobes who don't want to admit their bigotry. Or, even if sincere, how can you genuinely respect, let alone love, a person when you reject a central aspect of their personal identity in a pop psychological, not necessarily philosophical sense? The difficulty here is that for some people, their religion is as centrally important in their lives as their sexuality. So if we hold that disrespecting homosexuality means disrespecting gay people, then aren't we also committed to holding that disrespecting Christianity means disrespecting Christians? I can't see any relevant formal difference that would allow me to deny this implication. But note that this applies not just to Christianity, but any beliefs that an individual cares deeply about. Astrology, or other New Age rubbish springs to mind, as do political ideologies like communism, Nazism, etc., this presents us with four options, according to Chappelle. One, we could try to have more respect for all the idiotic and pernicious belief systems in the world. I'm not too tempted by this one, as you can probably tell. Two, we could deny that anyone is being disrespected after all. This would force us to respond more favorably towards sincere usages of the Love the Sinner slogan. Three, we could judge that the disrespect involved, though real, is justified in both cases by its role in public dialogue about values. This has similar practical implications to number two. Four, we could deny the parallel on substantive rather than formal grounds. That is, looking at the actual content of the claims being made, it happens that our position is justified and theirs isn't. So, which is the best option? I can't tell you what answer Richard Chappelle came up with because I didn't read further and I haven't done any more looking into any responses he may have gotten online to his question. I just think that it does raise an interesting point that you have two groups standing on the polar opposites of each other, each one of them denying that who the other one says he or she is is substantively real. You have Christians who are saying that there is no such thing as homosexual or if there is, it's just a choice or if it's just a choice, yada, yada, yada. And on the other hand, you have a lot of people on the left looking toward the Christian right and saying, well, you know what, I don't have any choice in who I may or may be sexually, but you have a choice about how you're going to worship. 
think maybe that's just a little bit short-sighted as well, that maybe choosing to be Presbyterian versus Catholic versus Methodist or choosing to be Jewish versus Christian versus Muslim, maybe there is a lot of choice involved there. But perhaps there's something inside that choice, something spiritual that's driving the decision to live your life in relationship with God that supersedes all of the choice involved based on denomination or even religion or creed. These are things where I think we all need to dial it down just a little bit and say, you know what, what do we have to do in order to have a dialogue? And I think probably the first question that we have to ask is, if I am not tempted to be part of a religious community of faith, or if I am not tempted to engage in homosexual sexual activity with others, maybe I need to be much more careful about decisions I make about judging that person, the validity of their experience, or even when it comes right down to the bottom line question we are all facing on a daily basis, who are we? Music by Kevin McLeod.